This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, session number 21. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey everyone, it's Matt Sicoria, and we are at session 21 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really thrilled to welcome Gina Green to the program. Uh, Dr. Gina Green is the Chief Executive Officer of the Association for Professional Behavior Analysts. And in today's episode, we talk about the APBA, its uh, unique role as it, uh, as it relates to our practice. And we also talk a lot about the licensure of our practice in the various states and some of the lessons that have been learned and best practices and things like that, uh, again, as it relates to issues of uh, legislation, licensure, and things along those lines. And uh, beyond that, you know, it's, gosh, it's really hard to introduce Gina. Uh, the reason I say that is because she's had such a long and illustrious career and has uh, won so many awards and had so many, uh, you know, esteemed positions in her field, including things like I just said, being the CEO of APBA, being the uh, president of uh, ABAI, and I can go on and on and on and on and on. But uh, I, th- I think what I'll do... Uh, is is uh, post her bio at behavioralobservations.com session 21. So for anyone who needs more information about uh, her background, I mean, of course, she does go into that quite a bit at the beginning of uh, this conversation, but uh, the conversation itself is, it's almost two hours in length. So I'm going to try to keep this introductory section brief. So if you want more information, Go to behavioralobservations.com session 21, and you can check it out there. Now, in our conversation, I do get a chance to ask some of your questions. You know, I can't do a full Q&A episode like I did the last time with Greg Hanley for every episode, but I am going to start soliciting questions from people who are subscribed to my email list uh, ahead of interviews. So I had a chance to try that out here with, uh, with Gina's interview and a lot of you rose to the challenge and sent in great questions. Uh, I did not get a chance to ask them all, however, because our uh, conversation was limited to APBA and licensure. We didn't get into some of the stuff that I uh, want to kind of continue the conversation with, uh, i.e. things like uh, skepticism, pseudoscience, uh, evidence-based practices, and things like that. Time just did not permit that. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a part two with Gina in the near future where we can get into those things in a little bit more detail. But So if you want to get in on that, uh, go to behavioralobservations.com, and on the homepage, you'll see a big red button on the right that uh, you can just click on and follow the prompts, and uh, I will send an email to you uh, before I interview someone asking for questions. Finally, before we get into the conversation, I did want to let you know that We now have transcripts available and some continuing education opportunities. So head on over to behavioralobservations.com forward slash membership, and you can check out all the details there. So I won't belabor the point. Again, this is a long conversation, so I want to get to it as soon as possible. Uh, We did have a few uh, technical glitches, so uh, it becomes pretty apparent at a certain point where those glitches took place. I'm going to uh, beg your forgiveness in advance here and uh, ask you to bear with us because I think the 
content that Gina brings to the show is excellent. So without any further ado, please welcome Dr. Gina Green to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Dr. Gina Green, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Matt. And uh, you're coming to us from uh, what is now rainy, I was going to say sunny Southern California, but it's now rainy. It is uh, the middle of January here in Northern New England, so I think the listeners can probably uh, fill in the blanks and guess what uh, the weather is like on my end. But I am more than honored to have you here on the podcast. You have been someone that people you know, have emailed me repeatedly saying, please have uh, Gina Green on. I sent an email out to my email list asking for questions, and, and, and I got a lot of responses back. People want to ask you all sorts of questions about evidence-based practices and early intervention and insurance and things like that. And so uh, long story short, uh, it's just, a, it's just a, a treat to have you on here. So um, again, Thank welcome you, to the show. I'm honored by the invitation and also by the interest that your listeners have demonstrated. Well, I hope we can live up to the expectations. All right. Yes, that's right. Now that we said all that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you is I'm going to APBA and you put out a kind of uh, uh, a really uh, clarion call about the importance of APBA uh, not too long ago. And so, uh, and also talked about how attending the conference is uh, one of the most uh, uh, one of the best ways to support it. So I want to talk about the role of the APBA, your role in it. Uh, talk about the conference itself, et cetera, et cetera. However, as I like to begin every show with, I want to talk about how people got into behavior analysis. So I was wondering if you can start by sharing how you first encountered behavior analysis, and you know, kind of trace that uh, to where kind of where we are right now. So what was what was the your first, uh, uh, you know, w was it the class? You know, what, how did you f come into the field? Uh, well, I'll, I'll try to make it as short a story as possible. Um, I grew up in a really small village in southern Michigan, but I was lucky enough to have a psychology class in high school. This was a long time ago, so it was really uncommon. Mm -hmm. And I had a great teacher who got interested in behavior went to Michigan State University as a psychology major. And in my very, I think it was my very first class, it was an honors class, Introduction to Psychology. It's one of those typical sort of surveys of psychology. So was to date myself here in 1969. And in that class, we had, of course, a little smattering of what was then called operant conditioning and Skinner. And um, the uh, I remember very clearly still the uh, doctoral student who taught that section showing the video of um, Lobos's work in language with autistic children, developing language. I think it was called operant conditioning of language in children with autism. And I was just kind of fascinated by that right away. But it was 1969. It was Vietnam. It was, you know, protests and anti-establishment and anti-control. You know, that was the social context. Um, so, you know, I, I had that interest. I, I, took some other classes. I had a really good learning class at Michigan State. I had um, a year-long 
practicum with uh, Hiram Fitzgerald, who did some of the very early work on uh, classical conditioning with infants mm -hmm. and applying some information from learning to um, child care. So I had this little, you know, sort of kind of bits and pieces of things. And I kept being, um, you know, more drawn to that work, the conditioning and learning work, than to what the majority of my program was at, at their, my undergraduate program, which was really clinical, sort of at the time, child-centered play therapy. So, so, um, so was, was behavior behaviorism and or whatever it was referred to at the operating condition, was that seen as kind of square amongst the backdrop that you had painted earlier of this kind of... Uh... I, I think there was a general tendency, you know, for people to be more drawn to the, um, you know, things, th th there's that aspect of control. And I think that whole notion of generalized notion about control was not popular, you yeah. know? In the 1960s, in, in general. Um, and at the same time, though, you know, that was really, obviously, the very early days of the development of behavior analysis. And, and there were clearly lots of people doing, you know, very good um, basic research in the beginnings of applied research and in operant conditioning and classical conditioning as well. So, you know, it's not like I was in discouraged from being interested. It's just most of my classmates, I'd say, were not as excited about it as I might have been. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll, I mean, what I always have considered a kind of epiphany is that I had this class and um, again, a year-long honors practicum in child clinical psychology. And it was all about child-centered, you know, non-directive, Carl Rogers type play therapy. And there was a clinic at Michigan State where they did evaluations of kids with autism. And I had a friend who was a graduate student in psychology. She worked in that clinic. So I would talk to her and I just got kind of interested in, in autism. And I'll never forget a, a day in that practicum class when I had to go into this jimungus playroom there in the clinic and there's toys all over the place. My professor and classmates are watching from an observation room and and I walked into this room and here's a little girl who is toe walking, spinning around, kind of rambling all over this giant room, flapping her hands screeching. She was a child who'd been diagnosed with autism. And I just remember thinking, you know, the play center, uh, client center play therapy I'd been taught, you know, would have suggested that what I was supposed to do is say, oh, I see you're flapping and I hear you're screeching, mm -hmm. you know, reflecting back. And it just struck me that those procedures didn't have much of a chance of of helping this child. And I didn't really know much about what would work, but I, you know, I had an inkling. Um, I went on and got a master's degree in uh, what was then a, a school psychology program actually at, at Michigan State. And that was very much sort of applications of um, what was called behavior management in classrooms. 
also lots of assessment. And I just, again, was drawn to what I was learning that was very systematic and was data-based and it was we had a lot on, remember, task analyses and developing objectives, breaking you know, skills down. And uh, I, I took a lot of that information, the skills I developed in that master's program, and I uh, worked on a curriculum project at Michigan State. It was actually to develop a, a very big curriculum for teaching motor and leisure skills to uh, students, school-age students, who were then classified as having mental retardation. Um, although we also branched out to kids with autism. And this project, the curriculum was, again, very behavioral. We took motor and leisure skills, broke them down into components and chains, developed activities for teaching those skills in one-to-one or small group formats, trained teachers how to do that, recorded direct observational data on how kids performed, um, used that information to you know, revise the, the curriculum materials, and we field tested it in special education programs in Michigan and in several other parts of the country. In the course of working on that project and traveling around, training people on it, collecting data and so on, I got to know some people who actually were trained in behavior analysis, had graduate degrees in behavior analysis. And again, just was drawn to that and was more and more interested as I talked to them. It, as I recall, looking back over all these years, I don't think anybody used phrase behavior analysis Mm -hmm. in the classes that I had and the practicum experiences I had in my bachelor's and master's programs. It was always operant conditioning or, you know, something under the guise of learning theory. But I came to learn that it was behavior analysis that that people were talking about. And so uh, after working five years post-master's degree on this project, curriculum project at Michigan State, I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up was a behavior analyst. And so I decided to pursue a a PhD in behavior analysis, Um, applied to several places, ultimately went to Utah State University, because at that time, they had a really strong uh, doctoral program in the analysis of behavior. And the main reason I I initially chose Utah State is that there was a day school on the campus that provided um, you know education services to about a hundred children with autism and other diagnoses from local school districts, and it was a behavior analytic program. In 1980, they were doing pretty much intensive ABA at least during the six hours a day or so that the the kids were at the school. Um, And the director of that program was uh, Seb Streifel, who was a Kansas-trained doctoral-level behavior analyst. I I just wanted to learn how to do applied behavior analysis with kids with autism. Mm -hmm. And once I got there to Utah State and started the coursework and lab work and things, I got very interested in the experimental analysis of behavior. So I 
pretty much for my entire um, doctoral program and for quite a while after that, I, I kind of had one foot in experimental analysis and one foot in applied behavior analysis. Do you think that's possible to do these days with the depth and breadth of how those two branches, if you will, of behaviorism have unfolded? Well, that's a really good question. I think there are some people who are managing to do that. Um, it's been a while, you know, since I was fully immersed in an academic situation. I mean, I've taught at universities off and on, um, though not for a while, but it, it seems to me to be really challenging just because as, as you uh, suggested there, uh, you know, the amount of information uh, in both branches, not to mention the conceptual part of the discipline, which is essential. You know, whether you're going to do applied or experimental work, you got to have the concepts and principles. And I don't know, I would think that even in a, you know, an intensive and rigorous doctoral program, it'd be pretty hard to cover substantial amounts of material in, in all three of those areas. I, I'm sure there are people who are succeeding in doing it. Don't know if I could, you know, today. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was. It is notable though because I was looking through your your publications, and you know, there's it's it's. I didn't break it down into how many in each, but you know, certainly it's notable for many publications in the Journal of Experimental Analysis Behavior, as well as uh, Java and other applied publications as well. So it's just uh, uh, pretty cool to have those perspectives in, in, in both domains. Well, I I feel you know really fortunate to have gotten such great training at Utah State in, in all of those branches, experimental, conceptual, and applied behavior analysis, along with you know, just great practical training at what was then called the uh, Exceptional Child Center uh, at Utah State University. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So uh, can, can you kind of, you know, trace from where you were at that point, so you're, you're, you're finishing up your PhD at Utah, and so how do you get from there to being the executive director of the APD? <laughs> well, and can you do it in I, 30 seconds? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, plenty of time here. You know, I, uh, my first job um, out of my doctoral program was teaching in the master's program in behavior analysis and therapy at Southern Illinois University. Um, I was pretty much groomed, I feel, for an academic position by my, my faculty mentors at, at Utah State. And uh, I spent three years at SIU, had great experience, had some great colleagues and students there. Um, in my doctoral program, I'd gotten really interested in stimulus control, and specifically in stimulus equivalence, which, again, the it's just beginning to be, you know, an area of, of substantial interest in research and um, in behavior analysis when I was a doctoral student. And so while I was at Southern Illinois, I'd gotten to know, well, starting in graduate school and throughout the time I was at SIU, I'd gotten to know other folks who were doing research in stimulus equivalents and related topics at 
University of Kansas, and uh, notably at the E.K. Shriver Center in Boston. Um, and I had an opportunity to go to work at the Shriver Center on um, in, in the great stimulus control research program that Murray Sidman had started mm-hmm. um, years before that. And Murray was still, he was retired from teaching at Northeastern University, but uh, he was still very active in, in the research at the Schreiber Center. So I just felt like, I, and I was, I really loved research and I didn't feel, I mean, it was a struggle to do as much research as I wanted to do at Southern Illinois University simply because I had a lot of classes to teach and, you know, student prep to go to supervise and so on. Um, did manage to get a good research group in stimulus equivalents going there, and we got several nice publications. Um, but I, you know, I just felt like I wanted to at least try focusing entirely on research, and I just couldn't p- pass up the opportunity to go work with Murray Sidman and Bill, Larry Stoddard and Bill McElvain and Bill Doobie and Bob Stromer and, you know, these great stimulus control researchers at the Schreiber Center. Sure, yeah, what an opportunity. Yeah, so I, I actually took a leave of absence from SIU, moved to Boston, see how things went for a year. Once I was there, I decided to stay, and so I resigned um, formally from SIU. And the the... E.K. Shriver Center, you know, is a, a developmental disabilities research institute, and the stimulus control research was done, you know, out in applied programs. So they had learning labs set up in these programs in the area that served uh, school-age students, mostly with autism and uh, other developmental disabilities. And one of those was called the New England Center for Autism. So because I had an interest in autism, I kind of became the liaison between the Schreiber Center and the New England Center. And so I would, you know, oversee um, the research that was that was being done at the New England Center. After a little while, the executive director there asked me if I would um, serve part-time, I think I started one day a week as the director of research at the New England Center to help build the applied research program there. And I said yes. And just long story short is over time, I became the full-time director of research at the New England Center for Children, now it's called. Sure, or NACA as it were, right? Yep. And I, but I I kept my appointment with the Schreiber Center. I continued to have research grants um, through the Schreiber Center. And so again, that a lot of that work was done in, in our learning labs and, and classrooms uh, at the New England Center for Children. Uh, I was there all together in the Boston area, in those, those two um, programs for 12 years um, before moving to San Diego. Now, 15 years ago, it was actually not long after 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, moved here. And that was really to pursue a, a job offer to help uh, an applied program um, in this area develop uh, an ABA program and, and some applied research. 
it uh, didn't hurt that I had been doing some consulting in San Diego. I had some good, very close friends who had moved from Boston out to San Diego ahead of me, and I would visit them and do this consulting and couldn't help notice that people were really friendly, (laughs) smiling, why not? The weather was fantastic. It's, you know, just a great area of a lot of geographic and cultural diversity. And I thought, you know, when I got the job offer, well, I'd grown up in the Midwest. I'd lived there for a lot of years, lived in the Rocky Mountains. Six years I was at Utah State, lived on the East Coast for 12 years. Why not try the West Coast? <laughs> you were due for some uh, for some nice weather, I guess. Well, it it um, I will say a factor was the winter weather in New England, as you know. I mean, you have so many days where it's cold and dark and, you know, dealing with the ice and snow, damage to my house and things like that was getting to be a little bit trying. Sure, sure. So I moved here. I, I worked for uh, that program for a couple of years. They had some budget issues and decided they couldn't have a director of research after all. And so I did some consulting to autism programs and taught um, at San Diego State University uh, half time for a total of probably about seven years. I taught one class in the graduate program, um, a master's program in public health, and one for the Department of Special Education that was Applied Behavior Analysis for Autism. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. Then, so I had also, during, um, you know, the span of that time I just described, um, gotten involved in organizations and the Association for Behavior Analysis, state organizations, and was getting, um, you know, more and more, probably more involved in applied work than experimental and research at that time. I was fortunate enough to serve on the Behavior Analyst Certification Board in the pretty early days. Uh, It was a Established in 1998, I got on the board in 2000 and spent from 2000 to 2006 um, as you know, a volunteer member of the board of directors of the BACB. Uh, learned a lot um, about really more uh, about the applied side of our field, but in particular, um, you know, professional credentialing programs and the importance of those and all the things that need to go along with. Uh, uh, things like a legitimate professional credentialing program to grow a profession, to help a profession you know, develop into, into a mature one. So various things sort of converged. Um, and some colleagues and I had, you know, for a long time and seeing the need for uh, work, particularly in public policies, advocating for public policies uh, and other aspects of the, the practice side of our field, which was just growing by leaps and bounds in numbers as well as complexity. 
And for you know a number of reasons, we ultimately decided that uh, there needed to be an organization that was focused entirely and exclusively on the practice side of the field. And so we founded the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts in 2007, mm-hmm. kind of, a, I guess, a, officially, uh, uh, you know, opened the doors as a, a standalone, you know, independent organization uh, in 2008. I was asked to become the part-time executive director in 2009, and of course, it was still um, very much a startup organization at that point. Um, once it got on its feet a little bit, I, I became full-time executive director and uh, just recently had my title changed to chief executive officer. Oh, okay. We're breaking news here on the podcast. Very, uh... yeah, I, I do the same thing I've been doing. <laughs> right, of course. That's right. We can't give you a raise, Gina, but guess what? You're now the CEO. <laughs> uh, wow, that's pretty cool. So from your perspective... What what differentiates uh, ABAI from? I, I I still have to catch myself from saying ABA, but <laughs> so uh, what what difference what differentiates uh, APBA from ABAI? Uh, well, I think it is uh, in the case of APBA the you know the focus on practice on the professional practice of behavior analysis. Our mission is you know, to support and advance the science-based practice of behavior analysis. And there are many ways that we do that, um, but a major component of the mission is advocating for public policies, for laws and regulations that affect the practice of behavior analysis. And, and that is where, you know, APBA really is distinct. Um, and that's not all we do. We also provide resources and education opportunities and activities, um, you know, that, that cut across uh, other aspects of practice. But it's really that concentration on um, public policy advocacy that distinguishes APBA from other organizations. We work with behavior analysis organizations within localities, states, provinces, and countries, with consumer advocates, with legislators and regulators on laws ranging from licensure and other regulation of ABA practitioners to laws that govern um, public and private health insurance, education, you know, other sources of funding and support for ABA services. Okay, so I want to dig into that a little bit, but before I get any further, uh, and I have to change my question now because I was going to ask, you know, what exactly is kind of like the day-to-day role of the executive director? So we'll just kind of cross out executive director and replace that with CEO. So w- w- what exactly does the CEO of uh, the Association for Professional Behavior Analysts do? Oh, uh, you know, a little bit of everything, which I, I imagine that's what most CEOs would say their job is. Um, you know, formally, I'm responsible for working with the board of directors to develop and implement the strategic plan and have responsible 
responsibility for providing overall leadership and management to you know all aspects of the organization's activities. Um, so I you know do a lot of the work as I mentioned on um, public policy. Um, you know have done of necessity a lot of this sort of basic administrative work, uh, including you know interfacing with our treasurer and accountant and legal services, uh, technical services, um, and others, and just the, you know, the basic administrative work you have to do with the nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, recruiting members and other support, serving as one of the spokespersons for the organization, along with the president of our board, who is elected as volunteer, um, work on uh, you know I don't do all of it, but again, we'll take the lead on uh, you know developing position statements, white papers, practice guidelines, um, you know helping to develop and collect. Uh, material that we can make available to members on the resources for members part of the website. Um, you know, communicating, I, I do, you know, interviews with reporters and, um, um, you know, coordinate our relationships with other professional organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, do you oh, feel, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so do, do you feel like your clinical skills come in? handy at times with given the 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 what sounds like a pretty oh gosh robust managerial responsibility well we're very small so although on the verge of uh of expanding um so it's not I, i so i mainly in terms of sort of personnel management have been responsible for managing um, services that we contract or purchase. So, you know, it's our attorneys and our technical support team and our accounting services. Uh, those are all purchase services. And um, I'm responsible for those. We have had um, a part-time administrative director. Again, we're just have gone through an extensive strategic planning process, and as a result of that, are uh, now moving to uh, an expanded organization chart and um, beginning as resources are available to to add staff. Okay, and you're all headquartered in San Diego. Yes, I, I right now, to be honest, I work out of my home when I'm not in an airplane or an airport. Some. <laughs> Because another part of the job is, you know, traveling a lot, speaking at conferences, going to meetings and so on. Um, but we are going to acquire, you know, a physical location you know, as we as we add staff. Um, so I, you know, I don't know about the, I'm, I'm certainly not applying those clinical skills on a day in, day out basis in this position. Um you know, except in so much insofar as I try to do that with mm-hmm. whoever I'm interacting with. Um, I do think, though, having been a practitioner, having trained quite a few practitioners, having consulted to a lot of service delivery programs, um, 
and having done both basic and applied research and that experience on the BACB, I think all of that has helped prepare me for what you know I'm doing in this position because all of that in, in conjunction with going out to state and regional behavior analysis meetings and hearing what people, you know, out on the ground are, are dealing with, um, you know, emailing and talking with lots of practitioners uh, and again with policymakers, consumer advocates, um, I think has, you know, puts me in a, a position to have a pretty good big view um, mm-hmm. of the current status of of the professional practice and, and some sense of where it's going and having, you know, that background and, and research and so on and writing grants and you know, writing other writing articles of all kinds. Um, I think all of that has, you know, stood me in good stead when it comes to doing things like trying to convince someone to adopt a law yeah. to pay for, uh, ABA services, um, reading and writing legislation and regulations, not like reading Jab and Java, you know, it's not like writing, um, articles for professional journals, but it's still, um, an arena where words matter a lot, where careful, clear language Precise language, not necessarily precise in the same sense, again, as writing research grant proposals or articles, but a different uh, level of precision, kind of precision. It's it's really important. So I feel like I've had a lot of good practice in various areas and development of various repertoires that are, uh, I hope, uh, helping what I do today. Great, great. Uh, We're going to talk about laws, et cetera, in a moment, Uh, but I... I want to talk before we kind of leave the broad topic of APBA. I do want to kind of talk about the conference itself this year. It's in New Orleans, and you know, for many, many reasons, uh, some of them behavior analytic in nature, and some of them, uh, you know, cultural experiences, et cetera. I, I'm looking forward to uh, attending. And so, uh, right. I, you know, we, we have so many choices of conferences to attend these days especially with a lot of these regional chapters kind of popping up, you know, even in little old New Hampshire, we just a few months ago had our second annual New Hampshire ABA conference, right. which uh, is, uh, you know, uh, they, the, and I don't have anything to do with it other than attending. And, uh, you know, I spoke at it very briefly, uh, but, uh, you know, the people who put that on, you know, it, 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 uh, you know, it's a class act, and it's a, it was a nice conference. And so I guess the long story short here is that there's so many things out there, even, you know, in, you know, little corners of, uh, of, of the country and perhaps elsewhere. So my general question is, you know, if you, you were to, if you were talking to someone and you know, they have these kind of finite amount of resources to expend traveling to conferences and so forth, um, what, what makes the APBA conference special? Well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> we always have, 
we're coming up on our seventh annual convention. And I think every year our convention committee uh, has worked hard to put together a program that will afford people access to information that they may not get at a lot of other conferences and meetings. We really try to customize the program to the needs and interests of practitioners and people who are, you know, have other interests in the practice of behavior analysis, such as those who run agencies that provide ABA services, who are not all behavior analysts, um, and those people who are involved in, in developing um, laws and regulations that affect behavior analysis. So we really try to make the convention program um, one that is going to result in folks leaving with information they can put to use almost immediately. Mm-hmm. So we uh, still have many of our oral presentations um, given by carefully selected invited speakers who are not only very knowledgeable and skilled in their particular area, but are able to take, for example, the best available research evidence and translate that into practical recommendations, you know, things practitioners can do tomorrow to enhance their clinical practice. We uh, also have a number of presentations having to do with the business side of ABA. Uh, You know, I know about you, but most of the behavior analysts I know, unless perhaps they specialized in organizational behavior management, got no training in business. And many are either sort of thrust into positions where they have to take on some business administration kind of tasks or, um, you know, they, for whatever reason, uh, have an interest in starting their own business. That's a complicated undertaking. Um, You know, it's an area that really overlaps with our work in public policy, because if you're going to be operating a business, you've got to know about the many and increasing numbers of laws and regulations that affect that, um, the services that you're providing, uh, as well as, again, the business operations. So we always have um, you know, a number of presentations on topics like that. We um, try to, we also have open submissions for symposia, research symposia and posters, and then this year panel discussions. And again, try to make those, uh, the content of the program overall cover uh, as wide a range of applications of behavior analysis as possible. We try to have a lot of um, content that cuts across areas of application. So they have to do with ethics and professional behavior, um, with training practitioners and training direct intervention and staff. Um, Again, um, managing a business, collaborating with others. This year, in particular, we've, we've always had sessions on these topics, but this year I think we have a, a particular emphasis on laws and regulations. 
um, for a couple of reasons, just because there are more and more of them. And because we are a young profession, I think a lot of people in the field are still um, having to sort of come to grips with the reality that uh, we are increasingly a regulated profession and that you absolutely have to know uh, about the laws and regulations that uh, affect what you do, um, affect the clients that you serve and their families. So we have several presentations this year by really knowledgeable attorneys and advocates and behavior analysts on um, you know a variety of different uh, laws and regulations. Are there specific presentations that you're looking forward to? I don't, uh, or if you don't want to name names, are there content areas? I mean, obviously we've talked about the the you know the law. You know, <laughs> um, let's get excited about laws and regulations, folks. That you know, <laughs> but uh, it it is interesting, I guess, and I guess maybe that's just kind of like no, a, really uh, an unusual product of, an, of a learning history. But no, it's uh, actually I you know I I think the whole area of public policy is really interesting and. Um, you know, I know I'm biased because that's what I do. I also, in a, in a previous life, I worked for a while as a, a paralegal. So, and I toyed with going to law school. So I guess really? I've always, yeah, I've always had kind of an, an interest in that. And I've worked with some, and work now with some just wonderful uh, attorneys. Um, so I think that part's exciting. And, I, you know, I really do uh, look forward to that aspect of the convention. Um, our keynote speakers this year, though, really don't work specifically in that area. Um, we're going to have keynote addresses by Kathleen Piazza, who, of course, is a world-renowned expert on, on pediatric feeding disorders. Kathleen will do a workshop uh, on treatment of feeding problems in children with autism. Um, Pat Fryman will give one of his inimitable and always entertaining um, keynote addresses on, uh, you know, applications of behavior analysis and just sort of typical pediatric populations. Sure, yeah. Uh, and a workshop on presenting effectively. Oh, really? Which he knows a lot about. Oh, for sure. Is obviously proficient in. Uh, and then the other keynote will be by uh, Greg Hanley uh, and his, um, you know, very... Uh, thoughtful, I think, approach to functional assessment analysis of problem behavior. And Greg will also do a workshop on uh, interventions for problem behavior in kids with autism. Um, we have uh, several meetings at the convention. We have a meeting for our affiliates. Affiliates are organizations uh, such as state and regional behavior analysis organizations with whom we partner uh, a lot in public policy work in their jurisdictions and, and in other areas. Uh, we have a meeting for university faculty, so folks who are training the future practitioners. We have a meeting for um, uh, directors and CEOs of service agencies. And I don't get to attend every one of those meetings, but if I'm not uh, chairing or attending a meeting, you know, our members of our board directors are. So we get a lot of information um, from interactions in those meetings and just informal conversations, you know, with people throughout the convention on, you know, what it is people are concerned about and 
you know, what they're, again, having to, to deal with out there in their everyday um, clinical and business practices. I see. And they can, people can find all that information at APA, APBAHome.net, right? Is that the, the website? That is correct. We actually have, uh, there's a convention page, so if people just click on the New Orleans graphic on the home page, they'll be able to access a, a complete program and, you know, read about the, there's many more presentations and a really nice array of topics that I, I didn't get to mention, um, as well as the meetings. We have social activities such as um, a great reception that is included in convention registration. It's always a lot of fun. Um, poster session will be in conjunction with the reception this year. We have uh, a luncheon with roundtable discussions led by invited speakers and other experts, and that's a, a popular uh, event. So we also try to have you know, opportunities like that for people to interact with speakers and colleagues um, in pretty informal ways in a really friendly atmosphere. Um, our convention registration and workshop fees, I think, are very reasonable, especially in comparison to some other conferences. Uh, yes, I will second that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, we try to keep them that way. It's, yeah. uh, it, it's tough. But, you know, again, we're, we are very sensitive to the fact that, as you said, there are lots of conferences these days. And so, you know, we, we try to provide really good value for the money by having a really high-quality program and based on the evaluations we've been doing, I, you know, it looks like we're succeeding pretty well because, you know, most people cite the quality of the program, the utility of the information that they have uh, obtained at our convention, and those social and professional networking uh, opportunities that they got at the convention. Sure. We have used, by the way, so. Oh, yeah. Folks can get, uh, this year we'll have a workshop that will meet the requirement for the basic BACB supervisor training. And we'll have one that meets the um, three CEU supervision requirement for supervisors. We have several that will offer ethics CEUs. I know everybody. <laughs> Everyone will be queuing up for those. I'm going to be trying to sneak in there to get my CEUs. It would be very embarrassing if I couldn't renew my certification. <laughs> Yeah, that would be, uh, yeah, um, that would be funny. Uh, so, um, uh, very cool. You know, I, I, uh, kind of embarrassed to admit I've only been to one APBA and it was, I think it was the first one in Boston. And, but oh, yeah. I do, I do recall leaving that saying, wow, I'm, I can really apply this stuff right away. So I think that sentiment that you described earlier of having really actionable, assistance for for those of us who are out there practicing every day is um you know that 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 was certainly my impression as well so well thank um, you for saying that's that's great to hear i'm i'm glad you you got that and i think you know the, the first convention uh, well i hope we've had I, I know we've had growth in terms of size um certainly from that first convention size of attendees and also the you know just the sheer number of presentations. So I think you'll find it this year on, uh, you know, an even richer program than, than at that first one. 
and that's the uh, weekend, I think, of the, uh, what, the 25th and 26th of March. Um, but I'll have all the details. Uh, 23rd through the 25th. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Thursday, we have um, a number of workshops and those meetings that I mentioned. And then the full program is Friday and Saturday. Okay, cool. Yep. And I will uh, post a link to APBA. Dot net and there in particular the convention page as well as these details Thank uh, you. at behavioral observations it's, it's New Orleans yeah. which you know I don't know about you it's one of my favorite places to eat <laughs> hear music just take in the really unique uh, subculture uh, that is uh, New Orleans and Southern Louisiana. Yeah, you know, I, I've never been, uh, and we did a whole episode on all the uh, non-clinical reasons to attend. So yeah, we. Oh, that was great. We really appreciated you putting that out. Uh, Any time to talk about food and restaurants and, and <laughs> fun things to do, I'm there. So um, the pleasure. No, you're reinforcers, huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah, very very primary, right? Um, so uh, very cool. So. Um, I want to move on. I, as I mentioned earlier, we got a lot of questions from listeners when they heard I was going to interview you, and I, I I'm going to kind of, oh, they all, oh, many of them fell along similar themes. So, uh, with apologies to all of the all of you guys who wrote in, I'm going to kind of uh, ask the questions in a more generalized way, uh, because I could, I could sit here and ask like 15 questions. <laughs> so, um, rather than doing that, I kind of summarize them into, into themes. So, uh, w one of them is, um, you know, obviously you're, you're the kind of go-to person as it relates to licensing and regulation and things like that. And you just admitted, uh, and, and this is recorded that that's, a reinforcing topic. Um, so, uh, you know, looking at licensing laws in particular, you know, there's been, I, I can't remember how many states have licensing laws on the books. 26. 26, okay. Um, understanding that hindsight's 2020, you know, what mistakes, if any, have been made, or, or put a different way, you know, what, what lessons can be learned for those other states that are perhaps going through the licensure process or at least contemplating doing so? Uh, well, that's a, you know, the $64 million question. Licensure itself is pretty complicated. And, you know, there are political and economic and other factors that influence licensure tend to vary somewhat from one jurisdiction to another, although there certainly are things that are common. Um, so it really, you know, it'd take a while to answer that question, I think, thoroughly. Uh, you won't be surprised that I do, you know, presentations on, on that very topic, you know, mm -hmm. pretty frequently. Um, but I'll just say that you know, we've worked on licensure laws and the rules and regulations for implementing that, them now in, you know, many different locations. Um, so we've learned a lot about the problems that can occur, and it can very easily backfire on behavior analysts for, uh, you know, any number of reasons. What, um, what are some ways in which that happens? 
Well, you know, you the legislative process is you know, by definition political. So, and licensure tends to be a pretty big deal um, to to a state government. And so, you know, you may and and we always work really hard with the behavior analysis organization in that jurisdiction because we think they should really take the lead, um, you know, with a lot of support in a licensure initiative. Um, we work really hard to try to make sure that a licensure bill has is well written, has the best, clearest language, the requirements that, uh, you know, we recommend, um, in it because it is inevitably, invariably going to be amended uh, as it goes through the legislative process, if it even gets very far. I mean, most bills don't succeed. They aren't adopted. Um, they're all going to be scrutinized by lots of different people, whether they're legislators, their staff people, administrative people in the state, people who oppose or have some other interest in the bill. Um, and so you know the bill, there's every likelihood that it's that there will be uh, changes made, there will be amendments proposed uh, if the bill survives for very long in the legislature. And so you have to really think carefully up front, um, not only about what sort of structure you want the licensure program to have, how it's going to operate, what is feasible within the state, what are the fiscal considerations and political ones and so on. Um, but also what aspects, if any, you're going to be willing to uh, consider compromising on and where you'll draw the line. Um, in general, when you're, you know, engaged in the legislative process, it's going to be good to uh, be seen as willing to consider amendments, particularly proposed amendments, reasonable ones. Um, but I think you have to be prepared to and think carefully ahead of time. Um, you know, what sorts of amendments you might be willing, compromises you might be willing to go along with, and, you know, a point at which a proposed amendment would totally undermine your objective of getting a good licensure program in place. So it's, it's just an unpredictable, you know, political process. Um, there is going to be opposition, and we have a lot of information about the sources of opposition and the arguments that are often made against um, behavior analyst licensure in general or against specific provisions of um, licensure model that we recommend. Um, and so we can help the behavior analysis organization in a jurisdiction um, anticipate those problems, work to head them off, respond to them when they do arise, uh, but there's just no guarantee. Um, you know, we've seen licensure bills get through in states 
where, you know, at the beginning, if I were a betting person, which I'm not, um, I would not have bet that uh, that licensure bill was going to survive, but it did. And we have some pretty good, you know, licensure bills in some states with, you know, not big numbers of behavior analysts, a couple where there wasn't even a behavior analysis organization in the state hmm. the time a licensure bill was initiated. And then, you know, all the way on the other end, we've had a couple of instances where um, licensure bills have been initiated by large well-established behavior analysis organizations in the state that have long experience with public policy, that had good, very good professional lobbyists, and their bills failed or had to be pulled because of those pressures to uh, modify the bill to the point that would have undermined the profession and put behavior analysts and, and consumers at risk. So, so would those things that get modified, I have to imagine there's some sort of uh, turf wars that come up, I suppose, Absolutely. You know, with other probably well-funded or well-lobbied for, I don't know if that's the right term or not, but uh, you know, whether there's you know, speech therapists or licensed clinical psychologists or, or what have you. Uh, uh, and this is me guessing, but, you know, I've, I've heard, uh, you know, um, uh, can you talk about the challenges of, of people kind of wanting to get in on the autism treatment train or, you know, for, yeah. for lack of a better term? Yeah, and, and you know, I'll start by, um, you know, just cautioning everyone, as we often do with groups that are considering licensure, about linking it too much to autism treatment. You know, licensure, a licensure law uh, licenses folks to practice a profession, period, within the definition of that scope of practice for the profession and within each individual licensee's scope of training and competence. It doesn't, you're very rarely, it's extraordinarily rare to see, uh, you know, any kind of a licensure law that specifies a client population or a condition, um, you know, with which those licensees work. So that actually is one of the challenges. You know, when we uh, a licensure, uh, a bill to license behavior analysts is initiated by behavior analysts or somebody else, uh, very often, I mean, all the misconceptions that there are about behavior analysis already tend to come out, of you know, in this process. Um, and one of them is, oh, those, that's just for treating autism. Those folks only work with people with autism. So we really have to counter that. We certainly want consumers, family members of people with autism, with other conditions who benefit from ABA services. They are absolutely essential allies. And so, you, you know, you, you want their support and their help in the licensure process. But again, you have to be careful that people don't, that you don't inadvertently reinforce this notion that ABA is only for treating autism. Okay. 
Yeah, good so that, that's a big challenge. You're absolutely right about the turf wars. You know, we, we always recommend trying to defuse those by, uh, you know, making it clear that behavior analysts, by and large, want to do behavior analysis. We don't want to do clinical psychology. That's not what we're trained to do. We don't want to do what other professionals do. Um, we want to do behavior analysis. Um, but there again, you're almost immediately up against the misconceptions that people have about behavior analysis, which range from, oh, well, that's really simple. Everybody does that. We're all trained in behavior analysis. We hear this a lot. Oh, I bet, yeah. To, uh, you know, members of some group saying, okay, those behavior analysts should be licensed, but, you know, we own that. Our profession owns behavior analysis, and so they should be licensed under our licensing program, our existing licensure board. Um, and, you know, everything in between. People who are licensed in other professions saying behavior analysts ought to be licensed, but you know what, even though my license is in an entirely separate profession, I'm trained in behavior analysis, so you should just give me a license in behavior analysis. Um, because I went to a workshop once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are various, you know, bases on which people, you know, make those claims. And, and you know, my experience has been that often it's out of, honestly, just sort of naivete. Um, the people don't know what the contemporary science and practice of behavior analysis is like. Uh, you know, they, many have information that's way outdated. Uh, you know, they still use behavior modification, which I personally think is an, an outdated term and can be misleading. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, or, well, that's just part of psychology, and so why should they have, you know, their own license? Um, and you also alluded to, um, you know, the fact that we are young and small in comparison to many other professions and those other professions have large state and national professional organizations that have been heavily engaged in public policy work for many years. They have big budgets they have lobbyists. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's a David and Goliath sort of situation where you have, you know, a small little behavior analysis organization in a state, and we're proposing to the state that they, uh, you know, license what, you know, initially is going to be a pretty small pool of people that can trigger concerns about cost. Because for many licensing programs, you know, it's expensive for the state to operate them. The model that we propose is more cost effective than um, many typical licensure programs. But we have to be able to convince bean counters and others of that. Um, and then another common source of concern is that, you know, again, people have this notion that uh, you know, ABA is just kind of out there. All kinds of people are trained in it and are capable of doing it. 
Okay, hopefully we are back and uh, we have resolved our technological issue. I'm really sorry, guys, and I'm uh, really sorry, Gina. Gina, you were on a roll there, and so I hope we didn't lose too much of that. I, I, I uh, beg your indulgence to continue uh, the, uh, where you were left off. Okay. Um, well, I, I was mentioning that there are other professions that have um, – organizations, professional organizations that are large and active and, you know, well-to-do and very experienced in the public policy arena, uh, who not always, but often uh, take some interest in a proposal to license behavior analysts. Sometimes they're supportive and sometimes they're neutral and sometimes they're pretty aggressive about um, taking uh, control of of the regulation of the practice of behavior analysis themselves. So again, it, it's just something for you know those who are considering licensure and to to think about again to take advantage of um, APBA's experience resources. You know, we've heard a lot of these arguments. We've got talking points, counter arguments, supporting evidence. Uh, uh, you know, just sort of tips and strategies or heading off problems, we certainly can't guarantee, you know, to solve them. Um, but, you know, forewarned is forearmed, I think is the saying. Oh, and sure, so yeah. better to, to have some information up front. I'm often saying that just when I think I've heard and seen it all when it comes to opposition to behavior analyst licensure laws or laws to fund behavior analysis services, something new comes up. Um, but that's good because I can just kind of add that to the store of information uh, that we have. And that enables us to better help, you know, the next state or provincial behavior analysis organization that either decides to pursue licensure themselves or has to perhaps respond to a bill that somebody else filed that could be very bad um, for our profession. So. What is the most kind of egregious or outrageous thing you've seen if you had to select one or two in terms of opposition or things that come up that are unexpected or what have you? You know, I, it's, I was tempted to ask this question when you said you went, you know, I thought I've seen it all, but things keep coming up and surprising me. So, um, well, I'll, gosh, there's so many, it's hard to choose. Um, there was uh, in one state uh, when a licensure bill was, I don't remember if this was a hearing before a committee or um, what the context was, but um, it's a state with a pretty conservative legislature and they tend to be generally anti-regulation. Mm -hmm. And a comment was made apparently that uh, this legislator couldn't really see the need to license behavior analysts. We could just have an Angie's list of behavior analysts, oh. and that would be sufficient to protect consumers. Um, well, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> good example, that is, of, uh, you know, something shocking, I guess. Not not good as an obviously <laughs> helpful commentary. Um, I just remembered, Matt, one of the, what I, I was starting to, to talk about when we thought you had the technical issue there is that um, when a behavior analyst licensure bill is proposed, a concern that often arises 
is that these lots and lots of people that are still out there who claim to be qualified to practice behavior analysis because they took a class or a workshop or they worked on a low boss program once or something like that, but they do not have the credentials signifying they've met the standards set by our profession, BACB certification. Um, but there's often pressure to just go ahead and hand those folks a state-issued credential to call themselves a behavior analyst and allow them to practice behavior analysis, even though they, in many cases, don't have the education and the training um, that even approximates uh, what is required, for example, to get BCABA or BCBA certification, very importantly, they have not passed a psychometrically legally validated professional exam in the subject matter, which is kind of the sine qua non, the defining characteristic of um, virtually all you know, legitimate and respected licensing programs. So there's this notion that if you, if you set what we think are perfectly reasonable standards for licensing behavior analysts, that is that they have to document training that meets the standards of the profession and they have to pass an exam, the exam. Um, so there are people that think those standards are too high and that if those are the requirements for obtaining the state licensure and then state licensure, you know, it's gonna determine who can practice and who can get paid from at least some sources for providing ABA services, you know, the, the notion is that, well, there are all these other people out there that have been doing ABA for years who now are not gonna be able to practice and are not gonna be able to have their services reimbursed because they won't meet the licensing requirements. And so people will get, you know, concerned or make the argument that that's gonna restrict consumers access to services and, you know, drive up costs. Uh, and so they want, you know, they see the solution being to, again, license all sorts of people um, on, on often, you know, pretty thin sort of evidence that they have actual training and competence in behavior analysis. I think that is a, that's not a solution. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a false solution. It's illusory. It ultimately um, puts consumers at risk. You know, it certainly puts the profession at risk. Have those fears ever been borne out? In other words, you know, if, if a state passes a really well-written, strongly defined licensure law that restricts practice to those who are board certified and so forth, is there any basis to that concern that having such changes have restricted consumer access, driven up costs, and all those other things that you cited as lawmakers' potential concerns? Um, it's lawmakers and others that express them. <coughs> sure. Um, and I can't say I have any hard data, but, you know, my, um, I think the question that always has to be asked when people raise this question about access to access is access to what, you know? Mm. Services provided by whom, with what 
objectively documented training and qualifications. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say that I don't, I certainly don't have any indication from the states that have adopted licensure laws that, you know, there's been a huge deleterious impact. Um, more and more funders are understandably asking for licensure. You know, if they're, you're a health insurance company and you've been mandated by another law, autism insurance law, to pay for these services that are called ABA, um, if you're a state that has a law that says that the health insurance companies and the Medicaid program or, you know, other funders in your state um, have to provide these services, then, you know, the state has an understandable interest and seeing that those services are provided by people who do meet, you know, well-established, empirically supported standards, and, you know, we're going to have a, a reasonable um, amount of oversight and, you know, regulation of, of what they do. And so, you know, the, the funders are often, if not the driving force, uh, supportive of licensure, and licensure that, again, is based on a solid foundation, which, you know, in our view is the ACB certification as the principal requirement for obtaining a state license. Um, but it certainly has happened in several states. There are licensure laws on the books right now that allow people who don't meet those standards to be licensed by the state to practice behavior analysis. Wow. Uh What's the, uh, you know, obviously laws can be, I would imagine through the legislative process, those things can change, hopefully. Uh, you know, I'm wondering what remedies are, are, are there for doing so. You know, if you do have kind of a law that got through that is, has created the situation that you just described, you know, have, has anyone changed those laws or anything like that? Or is, or is there, a, a, you know... You know, it, laws can certainly be amended, and you know, virtually anyone who can get um, a legislator or few legislators to support a bill uh, to amend a, an existing law, you know, can can get that bill filed. And so, we've already seen some amendments that, you know, in my opinion, have um, harmed uh, the profession. Um, no licensure law is perfect. No law is perfect. Of course, yeah. And so there certainly are some of our licensure laws, behavior analyst law, licensure laws, that um, could stand to be improved. Um, and so, yes, to answer your question, behavior analysts can always, you know, provided the resources and, and the wherewithal, uh, is there, they are there, they can propose to amend the law to try to strengthen it. But when you open your law up to amendment, it's going to open it up for others to propose amendments that you may then have to be opposing at the same time as, you know, you're trying to get your desired amendment through. And it just, you know, complicates things. Um, 
So, uh, and, and, you know, there's, uh, to a limited extent, there are some things that can be, um, I don't want to say fixed, but certainly strengthened through the rules and regulations process. So when a law is adopted, most licensure laws and other kinds of laws, let's stick with licensure laws, most of them are pretty bare bones. So they have some basic provisions for the requirements for obtaining a license. They will either establish a, a new behavior analyst licensing board or say that the behavior analyst licensure program is going to be added to some existing licensure board or not. Some states there are really no boards. It's a state agency that administers the program. Um, but the law says that the administrative agency or the licensing board or whatever the responsible state entity is, is authorized to develop rules or regulations to implement the statute. So it's in the rules and regulations that the details of things like the requirements for obtaining and maintaining a license um, the operations of the licensing board, if it's a new one, the the makeup and the license, the um, operations of the board, um, the things like uh, supervision of, let's say, assistant behavior analysts by behavior analysts, uh, details of ethical and conduct standards, and complaints and investigations and all that. A lot of that is going to be spelled out in the rules and regs. Every state has, in my experience anyway, has a set of procedures by which rules and regulations are developed, have opportunities for public hearing or at least public comment on them, and then a mechanism by which they're approved. So it's not until, once a licensure law is, is passed, those rules and regs have to be developed and approved before any license applications can be considered. So that takes a while. Mm -hmm. So there, there certainly are ways through the rules and regulations process that, um, in my experience, you can sort of beef up and supplement what's in the licensure law. But generally speaking, you know, the rules can't go outside of what is in the statute. So if the statute says this is the requirement, the basic requirement for licensure, um, the rules can't substantively change that. They sort of operationalize it. They may flesh it out, but they can't go against it. The only way to change the statutory language is through amendment, again, going back to the legislature. Okay, I see. Um, with regard to uh, a couple of other questions, and some of these questions are kind of related, so I want to transition to another question. This one was submitted by a listener that I kind of kept mainly intact. Uh, so this is, again, kind of a broad view question. With Given your perspective of seeing lots of programs, traveling a lot, listening to different, I guess, stakeholders in the behavioral analytic world. 
What would you say the biggest challenge BCBA providers face in, in the coming years? Um, certainly, we've talked about dealing with licensure, but also, you know, we haven't talked much about billing, maintaining business, uh, you know, businesses. You know, certainly, and I, I've had this conversation with other people, you know, behavior analysis has gone from its infancy into its, you know, adolescence and uh, where services used to be provided out of, you know, nonprofits and school settings and large developmental centers and things like that. Now we have all these, uh, uh, you know, clinics and other types of, of, of businesses. So the, the, the field is evolving. So, you know, what do you see the challenges are, what do you see as the challenges for BCBAs over the next several years as the field evolves so quickly while at the same time all these, uh, you know, regulations for funding and things like that, and, you know, I, with perhaps sometimes contradictory or confusing, you know, uh, rules and things like that happening, how do you see things playing out, I guess, long story short? Well, um, I think, you know, you certainly hit on one of the things that I think is crucial to determining whether we survive and thrive as a discipline and as a profession, and that is getting good licensure laws established uh, in, in every jurisdiction. Um, although licensure is not a panacea, there's still many jurisdictions where that may not be the best way to go. But one way or the other, our profession is going to be regulated. Um, it's inevitable. So we're going to have to come to grips with that. And it means we need to work hard to make sure that that regulation protects the integrity of our profession and our science and protects consumers. So I think those kinds of laws are going to be essential. Um, certainly, you know, the laws and regulations that provide for and, and other kinds of policies that provide for funding. Um, you know, often when I, I talk about the importance of public policy work to behavior analysts, I say, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are, what great university you went to, how many pieces of paper you have that you can frame and hang on your wall. Um, if there aren't laws in place that protect your right to practice and provide funding for you to do what you love doing. So certainly the laws that govern public and private health insurance funding, education services, rehab services, you know, all the sources of funding for services for um, typical clients of, of ABA uh, practitioners are a, a second area that's important. Tied in with that are policies having to do with health insurance billing. You know, we are firmly in that realm now, um, mainly because of the advocacy of uh, parents of kids with autism working to get health insurance coverage. Um, and again, it, it's not perfect, but there are definitely some um, benefits, I think, for our long-term um, survival and growth, if we play it right, uh, to be recognized as a healthcare profession. And we are in, increasingly, uh, you know, getting that recognition. 
Um, but it's an ongoing process, and we have to be ever vigilant about that. The other piece, I mean, you know, number of things I could I could zero in on that I think are really essential for uh, our our survival and health as a profession. Um, but you won't be surprised to hear that one of them is training. Uh, it's training of the future practitioners and you know the new practitioners that are out there. Um, not only in you know the basic principles and procedures of behavior analysis, but in this whole area of being a professional, um, being a licensed profession and all that that means. Um, again, an understanding, at least a basic one, of the kinds of rules, laws, and regulations that are going to affect your practice no matter you know where you end up working. Um, I think it means that practitioners are going to need it, certainly in, in the area of autism intervention, um, and to my biased way of thinking, uh, you know, more training in just sort of basic critical thinking and scientific method and logic for, you know, analyzing claims about interventions and discerning what evidence, if any, really backs up those claims, whether they're coming from within our own discipline or, or from other disciplines. So, and then, you know, for those who do see themselves, uh, you know, have ambitions to go run their own businesses, they're going to need to get those business repertoires someplace, or else they're going to need to know how to go out and find um, partners who have the repertoires in business and law and accounting and so on that are so essential if you're going to operate a an ethical and successful um, practice. I see. Yeah, lots of lots of things to contend with. They have to go to school for years and years. <laughs> I mean, really, there's you know, again, I think this just comes with the you know what I think of as our our becoming a grown up profession. Sure. You know, as you alluded to, we're we're moving into. I think adolescence is about right. You know, we're maybe an early adolescence, <laughs> you know, if you look at the, the course of, of development of other professions, you know, that are older than we are and, um, you know, where we are right now. But, um, you know, just part of it is certainly for those who go into practice, um, going to require learning about more than just, you know, how to do a functional behavior assessment, um, you know, and how to how to build some repertoires and how to reduce some repertoires. It, it's going to, uh, you know, entail, uh, you know, a whole other, several other sets of repertoires, I think, to be uh, ultimately to be really successful and effective. I see. You know, you, you touched on one thing, and I'm tempted to delve into it. You know, you talked about evaluating treatments, even some treatments that come in from our own field and things like that, that there's a whole series of questions uh, that people have sent in to me wanting your thoughts on various early intervention curricula uh, 
anyone who's on the ABA Facebook groups, uh, you know, they, they've probably seen you chime in here and there with a nice little friendly reminder of, you know, uh, well, you know, what's the evidence for that? I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know, so you, you, um, I, I, I see those kind of uh, gentle prompts from, from, from time to time. Uh, with your uh, Michigan Spartan uh, <laughs> uh, State. logo, yeah, States, Bob Harden, yeah, yeah, don't want to make that mistake. Yeah, I know uh, it's fighting words, it's right? Um, in Arbor. <laughs> um, anywho, but we we've been going on here for quite a while, and, and on and on on good stuff on the licensure and regulation stuff. So, uh, what I'd like to do maybe is to perhaps tee up uh, episode two with uh, with Gina Green and maybe just go all in on the clinical side and talk about all sorts of fun stuff about, you know, how do we, how do we tell if these uh, things that are coming down the pike are, are, are helpful or not? How do we critically evaluate them, uh, especially in the context of, uh, you know, being told that the, you know, again, just kind of, you know, if, if, even if they are coming from behavior analytic uh, sources and things like that. How do we evaluate those things properly? And of course, I can't uh, let a conversation. You know, I, I, I I'm going to have to let it pass this time. But uh, of course, uh, and I, I do want to bring up the the topic of skepticism and, in particular, facilitated communication and things like that. Uh, so um, we can perhaps have that as the agenda for perhaps a, a conversation down the road, maybe a conversation at APBA, you know, maybe you could do a live podcast or something like that. Um, maybe, maybe have like the NPR quality of like, you know, the uh, hustle and bustle in the background or something like that. So, um, well, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, happy to talk about those topics because they are kind of near and dear to my heart and in a lot of ways, I think obviously extremely important to, Absolutely, again, the, yeah. the success and, and um, uh, you know, survival of our profession. If we want to be respected, if we want to be on, you know, a, a par with, with other uh, legitimate and respected um, professions, uh, then, you know, those are the kinds of, uh, among the kinds of things that we, we all need to be um, thinking about and scrutinizing, you know, claims and assertions of, of all kinds, I think particularly because, Obviously, many of us work with populations that um, where all manner of interventions are being promoted and are being claimed to be, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread for, you know, that client, our clients' conditions. And so um, you're yes. right. There, there are a whole lot of questions. A whole lot of uh, there's, there's a lot of territory to, to cover there and I'm always glad to talk about that. All right, cool. So let's let's end with this. And I know you've you've kind of sprinkled in lots of great advice for practitioners throughout this conversation. So uh, at the but at the risk of being repetitive, you know, the last question before I let you go uh, for this conversation would be, you know, do you have any general advice for say a, a student of behavior analysis or a newly minted BCBA who you know just passed the test and is you know embarking on the job search or just taking their new job, what do you have any th thoughts uh, for 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 that person? I do. You probably won't be surprised <laughs> that, that that's the case. Um, you know, certainly for that brand new BCBA uh, or the student you know who aspires. To that, I think it's it's really important to just accept 
the fact that what you've been exposed to in the course of obtaining that master's degree and, and that credential is really a tiny smidgen of all there is to know about our field. And it's really a, just a small fraction of the knowledge, skills, and abilities required to, you know, to practice ABA at a high level. So I think, you know, just being realistic about that, um, you know, be, be proud, of course, that you've achieved that. You've gotten the degree and you've gotten that credential. I, I know that's difficult, but if you can think of that as a beginning and, uh, you know, a real sort of basic entry point for your real training, uh, I would really recommend to any new, you know, BCBA that they go get as much supervision and mentoring as they possibly can from the most well-trained, competent behavior analyst they can find. Um, that, you know, in many cases will mean you'll get that where you work, you hope. So you want to look for an employer that is going to provide you with good supervision and mentoring. Uh, I think you want to look at the track records of the folks with whom, you know, would be providing your supervision and mentoring, um, you know, and find out, you know, how experienced are they and what have they, uh, you know, actually done in the field. Um, there are other ways to get uh, more training and, and mentoring of a sort. There may be, you know, peer review groups in the area where you're living and working or some sort of peer support groups or journal reading groups. Um, I think any and all of that is potentially good for your professional development. Um, certainly reading um, in the professional journals and um, hopefully getting an opportunity to discuss what you read with people who are um, you know, more experienced and been around longer, more trained. Um, I would really encourage people to seek out continuing education opportunities that afford, you know, really high quality instruction. You know, they're going to allow you to develop, to grow, to learn new things, not just to rehash what you already had in your coursework or practica. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, not just a continuing education event that's easily available, convenient, inexpensive, uh, you know, and easy. Sure. Go after the ones where, you know, that provide um, solid information and if possible, you know, those opportunities to actually practice new skills. It's hard to get that part, you know, actual skill training, uh, you know, and a lot of the CE events that are out there, particularly certainly the online stuff, even, you know, some of the in-person uh, workshops, you know, depending on, on who's doing them and so on, um, are necessarily because they're time limited, uh, limited in, in what they can convey. But, uh, you know, I think if you look carefully at, again, who's providing that continuing education and what the nature of the uh, material they're providing and the nature of the 
activities in that CE event, um, you know, can help you find ones that are, are going to give you that additional training. And then, you know, if you have a chance, take classes and go on for further graduate training in the mm -hmm. field. Um, you know, we certainly uh, need people. Not everybody wants to get a doctorate. Not everybody necessarily is, is cut out for that. But, you know, we certainly need, you know, really high-level practitioners. But we definitely need researchers because without ongoing good research, the field will stagnate all all sides of the field will will stagnate. So if you've got, you know, the interest in the inclination, you might work for a while with that master's and that BCBA and then pursue uh, good doctoral training somewhere. All right, cool, cool. Well, uh, thanks for ending with those words of wisdom to uh, people in, who are out there in the uh, trenches People are just getting started with their career and uh, people who are excited about behavior analysis and you know, kind of plying their trade. So um, I really look forward to having, a, like I said, a subsequent conversation about some of those things we didn't get to. And uh, But until then, thanks so much for being on the Behavioral Observations podcast. Well, thanks, Matt. I would love to do uh, another session, love talking about those topics. So. So let me know when you want to set that up. And thanks again. I really appreciate it. We have a we have a great field and it's really good that you're providing this mechanism, I guess, for, for people to think about it and uh, obtain some additional information, maybe make some, albeit indirect, uh, some contacts with folks they may not come in contact with otherwise. So thank you very much. Oh, the pleasure's mine. And uh, again, just to reiterate, folks, APBA home. Dot net, uh, And so you can check out all those things that Gina was talking about at the beginning of the show. And we'll certainly have that linked up in the show notes at behavioralobservations.com. Okay, folks, you just listened to session 21 of the Behavioral Observations podcast. Thanks so much for joining both Gina and me today. I uh, really also want to thank you for bearing with us through some of those technological difficulties and hope you got something out of the show in spite of those. So uh, if you do enjoy the show, feel free to share this with like-minded behavioral folks and uh, whether that's in person or through social media or whatever. And uh, any show notes, uh, any references that we make today and so forth will be at behavioralobservations.com forward slash session 21. So you can check it out there. And finally, uh, be sure to support the Association for Professional Behavior Analysts. It is uh, at apbahome.net. So that's our show today, and we'll see you in session 22. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast. <laughs>